Explode the myths. Explore the truth. Expand your heart to God's presence in your life on Solace Radio. How many of you were in uh, in the church the last time I was in town? How many of you were? And you came back. Wow. Okay. All right. Very good. All right. Well, what uh, what we're planning on doing starting tonight is we're going to lay the groundwork for for the other sessions tomorrow, tomorrow afternoon. And even into Sunday. And so I'm going to encourage you. I know we kind of have a, a trapped audience here, you know, captive audience, so to speak. But I want to encourage you, if you can, to be at every session because the idea is we'll start tonight. We'll lay a foundation. We'll build on that tomorrow morning. Tomorrow afternoon, we'll build some more. By the time we get into our last session, hopefully, if I do my job correctly, everything's going to come together. And uh, we're going to try to build on it with every session. We're going to start out in Mark chapter 4. And we are going to talk about the end times, we are going to talk about prophecy, but how many of you realize, how many of you realize there's a lot more to prophecy than beasts and horns and bloody moons and things like that? How many of you know that? Three of you, very good. Hopefully by the rest of you. Well, for the rest of you, there is a lot more to prophecy than beasts and horns and bloody moons and all those kinds of things. As a matter of fact, all those kinds of things, the things that people typically emphasize are not the most important things about prophecy. If you were to look over at the title page of the book of Revelation, because when you want to, when people want to study prophecy, typically, typically, what book of the Bible do they go to first? The book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, right? Okay, class, this is where you get involved. It's the last book of the Bible. Alright, now here's the problem with going to the last book of the Bible to try to understand what's going on in prophecy. How many times do you go to the bookstore, get a three, four hundred page book, and then turn to the last chapter, read it, and try to figure everything out from that? How many of you do that? I know a couple people are going to raise their hand. But that's what we do when we want to understand Bible prophecy. We go to the book of Revelation typically. You've, anybody done that? Been part of a uh, home Bible study, going to study prophecy. We go to the book of Revelation. How many times have you been part of a Revelation study, come out of that Revelation study, having pretty much figured out everything that's going to happen at the end time? How many of you have done that? Or do you come away from it going, or having more questions than when before you started studying? Because, ladies and gentlemen... The, the problem there is because our God says in Isaiah 46, 8, 9, and 10, and I'm going to paraphrase. He says, I'm the Lord. I'm God. And here's how I'll prove it to you. Because I'm the only one who can from the beginning declare the end. You see, he says literally in Hebrew that he has declared out of the beginning the end. Meaning that if you want to understand the end, if you want to understand what's going to happen at the end of days, then you must go back and understand what happened at the very beginning. Because if you don't understand the book of Genesis, you'll never understand the book of Revelation. Everybody with me so far? So that's what we're going to kind of get into this weekend. Understanding the end by understanding the beginning. How many of you realize that God never changes? In fact, I think I read somewhere he said, I'm the Lord, I don't change. Let me say that again. 
He says, I am the Lord, I change not. Now juxtapose that statement against what the culture is saying. And what the culture desires. What does everybody want? They want to change, don't they? Everybody wants to change. And it doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative or green or, or you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. Everybody wants to change because nobody likes what's going on right now. Right? So everybody's talking about a change. That's what society wants. And yet, what does God say? I don't change. Jesus Christ, who I will now refer to by his Hebrew name, Yeshua. Is that going to throw everybody off? Yeshua the Messiah, the same yesterday, today, and how long? Forever. So if he was the same yesterday, and he's the same today, and he's going to be the same tomorrow, does he change? He is constant. He is consistent. And so here's, in reality, what we're getting at. When I was a little boy, we went to Sears once a year. And that was to get new school clothes. Anybody remember those kind of days? <laughs> we went to Sears once a year to get school clothes. And after I got through the chore of trying on pants and all this kind of stuff, my favorite thing to do was to go to the escalator. The one coming down. Because you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to run up. I submit to you that that is what our Father in Heaven is asking you and me to do. He is asking you and me to go up the escalator that's coming down. Because how many people are going up as compared to how many people are coming down? He's asking you and me to go against the grain of society. Not as rebels. No, that's not what we're saying. But if I'm going to follow society's trends... If I follow culture's trends, where will this eventually lead me? You see, there's a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is death. So as a believer in the Most High God, as a follower of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who went against the trends of society, went against the trends of the culture of his day. You know, have you ever realized that the Messiah stirred up a lot of trouble? Do you notice that? People have this image that he's walking around, this, this, he's a peacemaker and he doesn't want to make anybody mad and all the Baloney! Every time he opened his mouth, he made somebody mad. One time in the book of John, he says, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you will have no part of me. Read it. It says that many of the people who were following him left him and would not follow him anymore after that. And does the Bible then say that he ran after them? Guys, guys, wait a minute. Come back. Let me explain what I was really talking about. No. He turned to the twelve and said, are you going to leave me too? You see, the word, ladies and gentlemen, is... An offense. The Word of God does not appeal to our flesh, does it? No, it doesn't. Because when the Word of God speaks, when God's Word goes forward, it's going to, it's going to insult this stuff right here. Because this, according to Romans chapter 8, Paul says this stuff right here is enmity 
against God. It is hostile toward God. It does not want to do what God says. It wants to do what it wants to do. And so when we are led by our flesh, when there's that way that seems right to man and we follow it, where is it eventually going to lead to? Death. And here's what I'm getting to. Everybody in the whole world wants change. We want something better. We want, we want to change this and we want to change that. And all the time, the answer is staring us right in the face. God says, I don't change. What He's asking you and me to do is to return, go back to Him, go back to Him and His ways. That's the way that leads to life. There's only one way that leads to life, right? Right? And it's a straight gate and it's a narrow path that leads into life. And how many people are going to find it? According to the Scripture. A few, a remnant. So once again, we're standing there at the bottom of the escalator. And he's asking you and me to walk up, go to him, even as most people are going down away from him. And imagine all the stairs you're going to get as you're going up the escalator that everybody else is going down. He doesn't change. He's consistent from beginning to end. And so with that in mind... When the Messiah came and started to teach, and He gave us His words, I want you to understand that He wasn't saying anything different than had already been stated in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and all the other... The Messiah did not come to create or start a new religion. The Messiah came to reaffirm what God had already established from the beginning. And so then... In Mark chapter 4, a parable that you should, most of you anyway, be very, very familiar with. And it's the parable of the sower. We're all, most of us are familiar with this parable. But I want to submit to you, it might be better understood if we titled it the parable of the seed. Because really the emphasis is on the seed more than it is the sower. But let's read it. Verse 1. Mark chapter 4. And again he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. And when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. He said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that, seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven. And then he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? 
How then will you understand all the parables? And we'll pause there for just a second. And so very quickly, he describes four pieces of ground. And we probably a lot of us have heard teaching on those four types of ground. You know, some fell on the wayside. Well, what happened? Some of the birds, which represents the evil spirits or the, the adversary coming and snatching up the seed to carry it away. And why is that important? Because what is the seed representing here? The word. The word of How many words of God are there? One. There's only one word of God, right? And so then, and I'm going to get politically incorrect here. I hope that's okay. If this is the word of God, and there's only one word of God, then any other holy book cannot be the word of God. Of God. Is that right? Can't have it both ways. And so he is sowing the word of God. And some of the word falls by the wayside and the adversary comes and snatches it up real quick because he doesn't want the, the word to grow. Some falls on stony ground and it says it because it has no depth of earth. It comes up real quick. But as soon as the sun comes out, or as soon as the heat's on, as soon as the pressure's turned up, as soon as tribulation or trial or or anything like testing comes, it melts away. We've all met people like this. They hear the word, they respond very quickly, but as soon as that faith is being tested, because there's no depth, what happens? You never see them again. Some falls among The weeds and the thorns and all these kinds of things. And it takes root and it begins to grow. But these people are more consumed about what's happening on Wall Street. Or what Osama bin Laden said today. Or what's going on with the drought. Or with the floods and all these different things or my grandchildren or, you know, my cousin or, you know, all these different cares. They get more consumed with those types of things and they start drifting away and they get caught up in all that and it gets the word gets choked out. But then he says some of it falls on good ground, fertile soil. And this is really the emphasis of the parable. And when that word falls on good dirt, and do you realize we're all made out of dirt, by the way? Yes. Everybody, some people didn't realize that. <laughs> we're all made out of dirt. Interesting. Interesting. There are primarily, primarily five colors of earth. Black, brown, red, yellow, and white. I thought that was kind of interesting. I'm kind of thinking of a Sunday school song right now. But we're all made out of dirt. And so who is he really talking about? And what is he really talking about here? He's looking for good dirt upon which the word of God can be sown. And it can take root. And once it takes root, what is it supposed to do? Grow. And do what? Produce fruit. Messiah said, I would that you bear much fruit. Because when you plant an apple seed, 
and you take care of it and it's planted in good ground, you're expecting that that apple seed is going to produce a sprout and that sprout's going to mature into a tree. And eventually, when it's time, what is that tree going to do? It's going to bear fruit. And what kind of fruit will be growing on it? An apple. And how many apples? Well, it's going to be maybe a lot of apples. And when you bite into an apple, do you ever see a peach pit? What do you see? An apple seed. And probably a lot of apple seed inside that one apple. And then the next apple has a lot more seeds in it. And all of this came about because of one seed. So what is he teaching us? He says that when the seed of the word falls into good and fertile soil, then that seed should begin to grow and shouldn't get choked out by the cares of life if it's in good ground. It shouldn't wither away when testing comes along if it's in good ground. The adversary is not going to snatch it up if it fell into good ground, but if it fell into good ground, it's going to begin to produce fruit. And when someone else sees the fruit that that ground is producing, they're going to be attracted to that. And they're going to come and they're going to take that fruit. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to ingest that same seed. And if it takes root in good ground, you know what's going to happen? They're going to begin to grow and they're going to begin to mature. And they're going to produce fruit. And guess what's in that fruit? More seed. And is it a different kind of seed? It's the very same seed. So then, if there is only one seed being sown here, because that's the Word of God is what's being sown, there's only one kind of seed being sown here by the sower. And what fruit is it producing? The fruit that reflects that seed. Again, you bite into an apple, you find an apple seed. Because according to the beginning, when God calls trees that produce fruit to come from the ground, they bore fruit after their own kind, whose seed is in itself. And so in the very beginning, God made a law that if you plant an apple seed, you get apples. And if you plant a pear seed, you get pears. If you plant an orange seed, you get oranges, and so on, and so on, and so on. And so then, if the Word of God is planted here, what is the fruit in that person's life supposed to resemble? The Word of God. And so let me say this. If I say I'm a Christian, and I believe in that book, and then I go out and live a lifestyle that is contrary to that book, do we have a problem Because if that seed is supposed to reproduce after its own kind, what kind of example, what what kind of character, what kind of fruit should I be displaying? It should reflect what's in that book. We all agree with that? Now, some would say, well, now, Bill, you can't judge. Yeah, I can. He says, don't judge lest you be judged for with the judgment you meet out. That's how you're going to be judged. You know what? If I judge according to the word of God, I'm okay with that. What he's saying is don't rush to judgment and don't judge unrighteously. Because in another place, he says, you shall know them by their fruits. So what is he telling me to do? 
Examine the fruit. Take a good look at the fruit. And if you determine that the fruit is an orange, then you know that an apple seed didn't produce that. And so then, when you examine their fruit, it really doesn't matter what they tell you they are. You understand what I'm saying? You examine, you observe the fruit. Now, this is what the Scripture says, ladies and gentlemen. Now, here's what we're getting to. There's only one Word of God. There's only one good seed. And anything else is a bad seed. There's no other options. It's either this or it's something else. And if it's something else, it's not this. And this is the only good seed. And so if it's something else, guess what it is? It's the wrong seed. It's the bad seed. And oh, by the way, just kind of another little point, little footnote here. Someone tell me how many fruits of the Spirit there are. Nine. Anybody else? Thank you very much. Ten points for whoever said that. There's only one fruit of the Spirit. Go read it in Galatians 5. What it says is, now the fruit of the Spirit is... And it lists nine different facets or manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit. But it doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit are. There's only one fruit of the Spirit. And why? Why do you think? Because there's only one seed. There's only one faith. There's only one baptism. There's only one Spirit. There's only one Lord of all. Now, in, in verse 13... Messiah says, to paraphrase, do you not understand what I'm telling you guys? If you don't understand this parable, how are you going to understand all the other parables? And what does that tell me? That if I want to understand all the other parables that the Messiah gave us, then I've got to understand this one. This is the foundation for understanding all of the other parables, many of which deal with the end of days. So, how in the world does this deal with prophecy? You can't understand the end unless you first understand the beginning. And the Messiah in Mark chapter 4, Matthew 13, Luke chapter 8, where this particular parable is recorded for us, He has given us a foundational truth that goes all the way back to the beginning. As a matter of fact, before I get into the next part of this, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. Y'all still awake? If you're not, walk outside for a few minutes. Because it's cold up here. Lord have mercy. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. How many of you believe we are living in the end of days? few of you. How many of you would like to know what's going to happen? Four or five of you. Okay. Everybody else wants to go. Okay. Anyway. Well, in Genesis 1, verse 1, here's what it says. I'll give it to you in Hebrew first. I wasn't speaking in tongues. In Hebrew. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, why did he say it in Hebrew? Side note, because y'all going to all have to speak Hebrew. Messiah's coming back to Jerusalem, not Chicago. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when God created the heavens and the earth, let me ask you this, since He's perfect and He knows what He's doing, do you think He created it incomplete or complete? Complete? You think He was complete when He did it? I agree. I I believe that as well. And so then, let me put it this way, everything that was necessary for the creation to function according to His purpose, according to His design, I believe that when He created the heavens and the earth, it was there. In short... The seed for everything was in the beginning. Then look at verse 2. I'll paraphrase. It talks about how that darkness, choshet in Hebrew, darkness was upon the face of the deep. What is it describing for us? The entire surface of the earth at this point is covered by water. And the darkness that it describes there, it's, well, you ever seen those documentaries on the people who go down to the Titanic? How much light is down there? None. Choshech. That's the concept in Hebrew. And so it's describing this darkness that was caused by the entire surface of the earth being encompassed and submerged in water. But then what do we also see in in verse 2 of chapter 1? And the Spirit of God was hovering brooding over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, why? Because something's about to take place. First, I should interject that in Scripture, God gives us natural things to teach us of spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about first the natural then the spiritual. He talks about the natural or the first Adam, and then he talks about the last Adam, who was the Messiah. He said one was flesh and the other is spirit. So he gives us natural things to teach us about spiritual things. And so waters, the seas, in several places in Scripture are used to personify peoples, nations, the multitudes. And so naturally, or literally, if you will, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, over the face of the deep. But if there's a spiritual application, you know what the Spirit of God was hovering over? The peoples, the multitudes, the nations. And why? Because you see, the multitudes, the nations, are hiding something. Do you think that the Spirit of God knew, in verse 2 of chapter 1, that beneath all that water, there was dry land called earth? Do you think he knew that? It's not a trick question. Of course he did. And how did he know that? Because he made it. And if he created the heavens of the earth, verse 1, completely, and if the seed for everything was in the beginning... Genesis 1, verse 1. Do you know, he's probably not surprised at the fact that in that earth that's down there beneath all that water, there's seed down there? And how would he know that? Because he put it there. He is the sower who sowed the seed. Isn't he? But the seed is down there in the ground, underneath all this multitude of water. So something's got to happen. So what begins to happen? He says, now, let there be light. And there was light. Day one. 
And then he said, and let the firmament, excuse me, firmament be established in the heavens to divide the waters above from the waters beneath. And it was so. Day two. And then it says, now let all the seas be gathered together unto one place. And when all the seas were gathered unto one place, what appeared? Dry land that he called Eretz or earth. And then notice what the Bible does not say. It does not say, now then he created the grass and the herb yielding seed and the trees that bear fruit whose seed is in itself after its own kind, does it? Nope, that's not what it says. It says, now let the earth bring forth grass and herb yielding seed and trees that bear fruit whose seed is in itself after its own kind. Why did he say let the earth bring those things forth? Because the seed was already in the ground. What had it been waiting on? For the right conditions to come together. For everything to be just like he wanted to be so that he could call forth that hidden seed. To call it up out of the ground. Because when you put a seed into the ground, number one, that seed is hidden, usually. And that seed, as it's lying there in the ground, it's, it's waiting on some things. Soil temperature has to be right. Right amount of moisture. And most importantly, the proper season. Because what happens if a seed begins to sprout too early in the season and you have a, a frost, what might happen? It'll die. What happens if you plant too late or if it germinates too late and it sprouts up and it's young and tender in the heat of, in the heat of summer? Melts away. Dies. So then how important is it for that seed to remain hidden, waiting in the ground until it's just the exact right time? It's the difference between life and death. Now, here's the point. What day did God call forth that seed? On the third day. Does the third day mean anything to anybody in this room? It was the day of the resurrection, right? Let's see. The seed is the word. And according to John 1.1... 1, 1, in the beginning, God created, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. <laughs> he is the Word personified, is He not? He is the Word made flesh. And so if the Word is the seed, then the seed that's being sown is the Word of God, yes, but the Word of God is also the Messiah. So who was being sown in the parable of the sower? The Messiah was, wasn't He? And so when the Messiah falls into good ground, what's supposed to happen? They're supposed to be producing fruit that reflects that seed. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. In other words, I am supposed to be doing what he would have done. What would Jesus do? Well, he would have done what God said to do. Plain and simple. I'm supposed to reflect who and what he is. I'm supposed to do what he asked me to do. That's how I produce this fruit. And so then, going back to the beginning, it wasn't on the first or second day that God called this hidden seed out of the ground. It was on the third day. And so we shouldn't be surprised to find that the Messiah was resurrected, not on the first day, not on the second day, but 
On the third day. Why? Because it was a truth that had already been established way back there in the beginning. Everybody still with me? Now, I don't know how, how it is for some. I'm, this might be jiving into the deep end of the pool. We're going to go a lot deeper. Is that okay? I'm going to do it anyway. I just thought I would ask. You know, But stay with me. So he calls forth this hidden seed in the beginning on the third day. We won't go over there. We might get to it later and go into more detail with it later. But just as a footnote, Hosea chapter 6, verses 1, 2, and 3, to paraphrase. A group of people say, come and let us return to the Lord. He is broken. He's going to bind us up. He has struck, he, he, he struck us, but he's going to heal us. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day... He will raise us up that we may live in his sight. In other words, a prophecy that at the end of days, he's going to raise us up that we may live in his sight. But how is the end of days? What are they likened unto? The third day. In terms of years, how long has it been since the Messiah became flesh, was crucified on a tree, was buried in the tomb, and was resurrected on the third day. In terms of years, about how long has that been? Approximately 2,000 years. Now, the Scripture tells us that a day with the Lord is as a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is as one day. So how many days has it been? Two days, approximately, have elapsed. What did the prophets say? After two days, He will revive us. Have two days gone by? Yes. And what does the rest of the prophecy say? And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. So guess what? We're living in the day when he is calling that hidden seed up out of the ground, out of the multitudes. He's calling it forth. Because that's what he did in the beginning. And so here's another thing we need to understand. The seed is the word. It's the word of God. But the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. We understand that is Yeshua. That is the Messiah. That's Jesus. He is the seed. But according to Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, and I'm going to, again, paraphrase. In Galatians 3.16, here's what Paul tells us. There is only one seed of Abraham. Not seeds as of many, but one seed. And that seed is the Messiah. How many seeds were being sown in Mark chapter 4? One kind of seed. How do we know that? Because he was sowing the word of God. And there's only one word of God. And so again, in Galatians 3, Paul tells us there's only one seed. There's only one good seed of Abraham, not many, one, and that seed is Messiah. And then he goes on and he says in verse 29, and he says, and if you are in Christ, or if you are Messiah's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So do you understand what I just said? The seed is the word. But the seed is the Messiah. 
But the seed is also representative of those who are in the Messiah. You are, if, how many of you are in Messiah tonight? Then guess what? According to the scripture, you are the seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. So what does the seed represent? The word of God, which is synonymous with the Messiah. But guess what? The Messiah has a body. So the seed represents you and me. So going back to the sower in Mark 4 now, what was he attempting to do? He was wanting to sow this seed. Some of it fell over here by the wayside. The adversary comes in later, snatches it up. Nothing happens with that. That's just how it happens. Some of it fell over here on stony ground. It grew up real quick, responded very quickly. But as soon as it got too rough, they disappeared. Some of it grew up over here, but because they were too concerned about this and that and the other, that choked out. But that that fell on good ground, it started to grow and mature and it began to produce fruit. And what will the fruit look like? The seed that wrought it. And some produced 30, some 60, some a hundredfold. By the way, what does that mean? Let me tell you what it does it mean. It has absolutely nothing, nada, net, zero, zippo, zilch to do with money. <laughs> he is not talking about money when he talks about 30, 60, 100 fold. Is he or did I overlook it? What is he talking about? He's talking about the word of God being sown. So I have to say this or spit. Look, I'm all forgiving. I'm all forgiving. If people didn't give, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing. And if there's any benefit in that, then and I'm thankful that people have given to help us to do what we do. So please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. This whole thing has been misappropriated and taken out of context. Because there are people who will say, you send me $100 and sow a seed into my ministry of $100 and God's going to send you $1,000. And I had a friend, we were talking about this one night, and he said this, and it was so profound I had to repeat it. He said, it seems to me if they need the money that bad, why don't they send us $100 and God will send them 1000 <laughs> The 30, 60, and 100 fold has nothing to do with money. It's about the Word of God maturing in someone's life and reproducing that fruit. And how much more seed is going to be there to fall into the ground if they produce a lot of fruit? You see how this grows? And so what was the sower trying to do? He was trying to fill up the world with good seed. He was wanting the good seed to take root in the ground and infect the world rather than being affected by the world. In other words, to cause and provoke the world to adjust to God's plan rather than God's plan adapting to man's plan. Because you know what's happened since the beginning, mankind, and you and I are not exempt from this, mankind, as we have evolved, 
as we have changed, because you understand that evolution is synonymous with change. Think about it. Evolution is synonymous with change, because what does evolution basically teach? Change. And each change, we're moving to the next level and we're getting smarter. Change is synonymous with evolution. Do you think God's for evolution? No, He's not. You know why? Because He says, I don't change. And so as we have gotten smarter, so be, you know, so-called. By the way, we're not getting smarter. <laughs> we're not evolving, we are devolving. But at any rate, as we've gotten smarter, what we've done is we've, we've tried to make God's Word adapt to our world. We've taken the Word of God and said, well, that might have been good 3,500 years ago. But we live in the 21st century. Certainly God doesn't expect us to care what He said about this particular uh, way of life 3,500 years ago. Certainly He's changed His mind. That's what we do. And you know why we do that? Because instead of infecting the world, we have been infected by it. If you don't understand the parable of the sower, he says, you're not going to understand any of the other parables. And so to summarize, from the very beginning, there's only been one good seed. Only one. And he hasn't changed that. Since the beginning, this one good seed... Its purpose is to produce fruit, multiple fruit, wherein you find that same good seed. And that seed falls into the ground and it produces more and more fruit. That's the way it's supposed to have been from the beginning. So then, to understand that parable allows us to understand and more properly interpret all the other parables. And so with that in mind, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, verse 1. I'm not going to read this. just want you to take note of something. Matthew 13, and go all the way through verse 23. Just kind of scan over it. What is he talking about? Somebody tell me. Same parable we were just discussing, isn't it? Okay, it's the parable of the sword, the parable of the seed. Just wanted you to take note of that. Again, the same parable, that if you don't understand this one, then you cannot understand all the other parables. Did he not say that in Mark 4, verse 13? So then, understanding this parable, I want to take a look at the next parable that we see here in Matthew 13. is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Verse 24, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Well, stop. He's sowing good seed in his field. So based on what we just learned in the parable of the sower, what is he sowing in his field? The word of God. And the word of God is synonymous with the Messiah. But the word of God, the Messiah, what else is this synonymous with? The body of Messiah. So he sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat 
and when is where? But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now we're going to skip the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, but let's go over to where... They ask him about the parable of the tears of the field. That's verse 36. The Yeshua sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. You ever notice how many times Messiah said, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. You ever notice that? He said it a lot. Do you know why he said that? Because most people don't listen. You understand? You, you recall when he was on the, on, when he was being crucified, he says, Eli, Eli, lama shavatani. Eli, Eli, lama shavatani. Which is interpreted, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Now, this is not really part of my subject matter, but just throw a little nugget out there, no extra charge. A lot of people grew up, myself included, being told that when the Messiah is hanging there on the cross and he shouts these words out, that he's calling out to the Father, you know, why are you forsaking me? I, I can remember it being put to us that, you know, the, the clouds had gathered in and it had grown dark and the Father turned his back on the Son because he couldn't bear to look upon him with the weight of the world's sin upon his shoulders. And thus he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama shavatani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You ever heard that? Nope. <laughs> No. Imagine what's going on right now. He's being crucified. And you know what crucifixion was? Death by strangulation. Suffocation. In a very painful, very, very painful way. And so in other words, he's hung in such a way, probably not like this, like you see in all the pictures. Probably like this, with his knees, both knees turned up like this, heel to heel. They would take a block of wood, they would drive a spike through the wood and go directly through the heel, both heels, because the prophecy in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and there would be enmity between your seed and her seed. He's going to crush your head, you're going to bruise his heel, and he would be hung like this, in other words, where he couldn't breathe. And so, in order to speak... You have to have air in your lungs, don't you? 
So to speak, what was he having to do? He's having to push up on the heel and pull up on the spikes through his wrist just to get air in his lungs so he could say, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani. Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the first line in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 1. Which if you go and read that tonight, that's your homework. If you go read that tonight, you will see that Psalm 22 begins by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it goes on to talk about, they wag their heads like bulls of Bashan. I can tell all of my bones. They parted my garments. They pierced my hands and my feet. What is Psalm 22 describing? The crucifixion. So you know why he said, Eli, Eli, lama Because he was wanting to provoke the people who knew the scripture to go back to Psalm 22 and understand that what the prophet had predicted so long ago, that's what you're witnessing right now. But why did I tell you that? Because some people, it says, thought he was calling out for Elijah. In other words, there were people who heard what he said, but who did not hear what he said. So so he says many times, he who has an ear, let him hear. So we've already understood what the good seed represents. And so, and, and we got to understand that, to understand the parable of the wheat and the tear. And so a man has a, a field which is the world, according to the interpretation. So what is the man who owns the world wanting to sow into the world? The Word of God, the Messiah. The sons of the kingdom. What is he wanting to do? He's wanting to fill the world up with his sons, with his daughters, with his word, with those who emulate him, those who produce the fruit of the seed of the word. And how are they likened? Or what are they likened unto? Wheat. Why wheat? It's the staff of life. It's made into bread, lechem in Hebrew. Messiah was born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the house of bread. He is the bread that came down out of heaven. I'm the bread that your fathers ate in the wilderness. So he's referred to as bread. The word is often referred to as bread, right? So why shouldn't we be likened unto wheat if we're the sons of the kingdom? But when the wheat grows up and it begins to mature... And it produces its fruit. Those, those little kernels of wheat cause that stalk to bow over. Did you know that? As the wheat grows up and the fruit begins to appear, the wheat is heavy. The kernels are heavy. And so it causes the stalks of wheat to bow like this. And so when the reapers come, they, they take that wheat, they cut it down, and they take it to a threshing floor. Why? Because the wheat also has this hard, calloused little casing called chaff. You don't eat that. It's not fruitful. And so you know what they, would, what they would do? They would take it and they would beat it against a hard surface. Why? To break off the flesh. And then they would take a winnowing fork, a fan in the King James... And they would go to the threshing floor with this winnowing fork. They'd just throw this stuff up in the air. Because after they have broken the chaff off the wheat and they throw this stuff in the air, they would do it in the late afternoon when the breeze is beginning to blow. 
the wind is beginning to blow. And in Hebrew, that word wind is ruach, which is also the word for spirit. And so they would throw this up into the air while the spirit's moving. (laughs) And the spirit would cause the chaff that is now been broken off, which is lighter than the kernel of wheat, it would blow it away. Just take it away. And you know what falls back to the ground? The wheat, which looks like the seed that was first sown. And then they gather the wheat into the barn and they make it into bread. So, you you followed me on that, right? But he's wanting to fill the world up with wheat, with the good seed, with the sons of the kingdom, with the word of God. However, there's a little monkey wrench thrown into this. His enemy came into his world and did what? Sowed tares in the midst of the wheat. Not in the far corner, but right in the midst of the wheat. Now, tares... My understanding is, many years ago, a man shared this with me. He was a Kansas wheat farmer. And he told me, tares in Kansas, they referred to as cheat. Cheat, I thought that was apropos. C-H-E-A-T. Because when it first springs up, it looks almost just like wheat. And to the untrained eye, like myself, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. The wheat... The tear, it would look basically the same. In fact, in seed form, it looks the same. As a matter of fact, scripturally, tares are called zunim in Hebrew. Zunim. And zunim is understood to be a degenerate form of wheat. In other words, it looks like wheat. You plant it. Initially, it acts like wheat. And it grows up. And to somebody like myself, I wouldn't be able to tell it apart until it began to produce its fruit. Because when the cheat or the tear or the zunim begins to produce its fruit and the wheat begins to produce its fruit, even the untrained eye will be able to tell. And here's why. Because as I told you, when the wheat begins to produce its fruit, the stalks of wheat begin to bow. Because the fruit is heavy. But do you know the fruit that the tear produces is not weighty like that. And so the tear stands up proud and erect. And here's the other thing. The fruit of that tear, if you eat it, it's poison. It looks like wheat. It acts like wheat. But if you look very carefully... You shall know them by their fruit. Not by what they say, necessarily. Not, for the most part, not even by how how they behave. But you wait and you observe the fruit. And then when you conclude what the fruit is, then, aha, then you know what the seed is. In other words, the adversary didn't plow an acre over here to plant a field of tares. That was not what he wanted to do. What did he want to do? He wanted to put the tares right in the midst of the wheat. Why? So they would both grow together. And as a matter of fact, the owner of the field, who is 
God allows them to grow together. Why? Because if I uproot the bad, I'm going to have to uproot the good with it. So he allowed them to both grow together. What is this getting to? All this is happening. These both are growing together until when? The harvest, which is, according to the interpretation, the end of the age. How many of you believe we're living in the end? So guess what? We're approaching the time, perhaps living in the time, that we should begin to see this parable come to life for us. Now, we can look at this on different levels. If I just looked at it, that okay, say this is the field. I know that in my life, the good seed has been sown. But I also know I'm still walking around in this right here. You understand? And so I'm sure this will not apply to anybody else in this room. But there are days that Bill gets up and Bill don't want to do what God says. Bill wants to do what Bill wants to do. Somebody cuts me on traffic. Bill wants to say what Bill wants to say. You know, and on and on and on. Everybody understands, right? We still have these things in our life that we're still dealing with, we're grappling with. Maybe it's with this, it's this with you, and with over here it's this, or it's this and this, and we're trying to overcome these things. Okay, that, that's that, that's fine. We we all have problems, we all have issues, we are all striving to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. We're on a journey, and it it's a process. But then there are some who are just of that other seed. But to accomplish their goals, they get into the midst of a group like this. The tares are always in the midst of the wheat. I'll use my own personal experience as an example. You know, I was, as the pastor mentioned, I was, uh, my wife and I were youth pastors for a number of years down in Florida. And I can tell you that the, the problems that we most often dealt with were not coming from the world. Because, you see, the world does what the world does. You know what they're going to do. You know, and so no surprise is there. But the surprises came from the people we were sitting next to in the pew. Or do y'all not know what I'm talking about? (laughs) The tares are always sown in the midst of the wheat. At large, the body, the tares are sown in the midst of it. And so, you know how the adversary usually renders confusion? Is through people who say, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. They look like we. They act like we. But after a while, you discover, once the fruit appears, they weren't we. As a matter of fact, they poison those who partake of that fruit. And yet, God permitted both of them to grow up together until the end of the harvest. Now, let's expand it out one more time. Again, the seed is the Word. And there's only one Word of God, right? There's only one good seed. And so then, let's reemphasize this. If this is the Word of God... How many of you believe it is? How much of this is the Word of God, by the way? From cover to cover? Okay. If this is the Word of God, and there's only one good seed, then there can't be another holy book that's the Word of God. 
And so if there's another group of people saying that they've got another holy book, and it's God's Word too, and at any point it contradicts this, somebody's lying. And if this is the Word of God, and if this is the truth, then guess what? All those other holy books are that other seed that looks like wheat. It even acts like wheat sometimes. But the fruit that it produces is going to be the antithesis of this. In other words, let's just say theoretically. That the founder of our faith preached compassion, mercy. But he didn't compromise the truth. You remember when the woman who was brought to him caught in the act of adultery. Not accused of it, but caught in the act of adultery. He never once refuted that the Torah of Moses or the law of Moses said that she should be taken out and stoned. He didn't say, no, 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 no. He did not say that. What did he say? He just wrote in the sand, and then he turned to those guys, and I'm going to paraphrase what he said. Because the wages of sin is death, right? He just turned to those guys and said, okay, any of you who aren't worthy of death yourself, you go first. Because how many have sinned? All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none perfect. No, not one. And so he didn't say that the law doesn't say that or the law that's been done away with or anything. No, he said, any of you who aren't worthy of death, you go first. And so then the, the, the only one there who could have justly carried out the sentence chose not to. Mercy. Compassion. Long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. In other words, does our, our leader, our Messiah, compel you and me to strap explosives on if somebody doesn't agree with us? Are we compelled to do that? No, we're not, are we? We love those who hate us. Now, let's compare that theoretically with another holy book whose founder taught the opposite of that. Who taught that if they disagree with you, kill them, theoretically. If they disagree with you, make them your slaves. And yet we live in a world who somehow or another has no problem saying that this book and that other theoretical holy book come from the same God. Because they look alike. They act alike. But do they produce the same fruit? And so, folks, the tares are sown in the midst of the wheat. Do you know why the tares are sown in the midst of the wheat? To kill the wheat. To destroy the wheat. To destroy the Word of God. To destroy sons of the kingdom. That is their objective. Because you think about these two opposing plants growing up in that same little patch of ground. You know what they're doing with one another? They are competing for the same nutrients, the same water, the same patch of ground. And this contest continues until the end of the age. Until the owner sends the reapers to intervene. 
So in the parable of the wheat and the tear, did the owner of the field want to sow this other seed that produced this poisonous fruit? No, he did not. So he did not want this other plant in his field, this other plant that produced a fruit that if you ate that fruit, you'll die. He didn't want that. Who sowed that other that other plant? His enemy. All right, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So how is it described the trees that God calls to grow? They were pleasant to the sight and what? Good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what was growing in the midst of the garden? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the tree of life produced a fruit that if you ate that fruit, presumably you would live forever. As a matter of fact, when the man and the woman were being expelled from the garden, God had to post cherubim or cherubim on the eastern approach to the tree of life, lest man should take hold of it and live forever, right? So if you eat the tree of life, eat that fruit, you live forever. Who's all about life? Okay. As a matter of fact, in, in tree of life in Hebrew, it's Chaim. And it's Chaim is a, a synonym for the word of God. In Proverbs, it talks about those who take hold of it. It is a tree of life for them. Because if, well, what does Deuteronomy 8 say? When God led you through the wilderness all these 40 years, He's speaking to Israel. He did it to humble you, to test you, to see it was, if it was in your heart to keep His commandments. And so He humbled you and He caused you to hunger. And He gave you manna that your fathers did not know, nor did you know, so that you would know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So how are we truly going to live, ladies and gentlemen? By the word of God. And so the tree of life, although I believe it was a literal tree, it's also speaking metaphorically of what? The word of God. And who is the word of God? The Messiah. But what else was growing in the midst of the garden? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now stop. Are you aware that according to the scripture, God is very, very adamant about mixing things that oppose one another? Are you aware of that? He, he, he talks in Ezekiel 44 that the priests are to distinguish between the holy, the set-apart things, and the profane. What happens when you offer profane fire? You're toast. Okay, just ask Aaron's sons. He says, don't mingle the holy with the profane. Don't mix them together. In 1 Kings 18, when Elijah goes to Mount Carmel and he... And he uh, speaks to Ahab and all of Israel, he says to them, how long are you going to go back and forth between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then serve the Lord. If Baal is God, serve Baal. But here's what's inferred in his statement. Quit mixing the two together. 
Here's the way the Messiah put it when he spoke to Laodicea. I would that you were hot or cold. But because you are lukewarm, which is a mixture of hot and cold, what does he say? I will spew you from my mouth. So does he like things to be mixed that are opposites? In fact, you know what he's telling the church of Laodicea? I would that you were righteous, or I would that you were just a total heathen. At least we know what you are. But what I don't want is for you to appear to be righteous and then live like they do. You know why? Because that renders confusion. And who is the author of confusion? So then, here's what I'm getting at. Good and evil. Does that sound like opposites to you? And this tree was producing a fruit that was good and evil. And they were both growing together in the midst of the garden. But one, if you eat it, you live. And the other, if you eat it, eat the fruit of that tree, what happens to you? You die. Does this sound familiar? In fact, he says, you may freely eat of all the trees of the garden, but that tree right there, if you, the day that eat, you eat the fruit of that tree, you shall surely die. Now, in God's mind, was the fruit that grew on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil good for food? No, he said, don't eat it. <laughs> Doesn't sound like it's good for food. And did we not just read that God caused all the trees to grow from the garden that were pleasant to the sight and good for food? These two trees, he just talks about the fact that they're there and what's, what's going on. They're growing up in the midst of the garden together. And one, if you eat it, you live. The other, if you eat it, you die. I want to make a suggestion to you, and you don't have to agree with me. I'm going to make a suggestion to you. What's going on in Genesis 2? The Messiah gives us a little more details about it in Matthew 13 in the parable of the wheat and the tare. In other words, God wanted the tree of life. God wanted man to live. He's always wanted man to live. He's pulling for us. He's on our side. He doesn't want us to die. He wants us to live. He said, see this asset before you, blessings and curses, life and death. I would that you choose life. But what do we choose? Death. Every time. You know why? Do you know why? Because we're stupid. Here's what I'm getting at. I'm going to suggest to you that God did not plant the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That somebody else sowed that seed that grew up into the tree that produced the fruit of good and evil. Well, that would seem to say, Bill, that that, you know, Satan has creative powers. Hmm, no, not creative powers. But he is able to do exactly what you and I do. You know what we do with the Word of God? We twist it. And we add to it. And we take away from it. And you know what we end up with? Good and evil. Is he not the father of lies? And so then, ladies and gentlemen, and we'll close with this. From the very beginning, the adversary's methodology has been to come into the midst of what God was doing 
to come into the midst of the wheat and sow something that looks like the wheat, that looks good for food, that looks like something that God would be part of. If you're not careful, you may be deceived into thinking that that's of God. And it's, they're speaking for God. Only to find out later that the fruit you have taken and eaten will kill you. So then how important is it for us to know what the Word of God says? It's life and death. Why is that such a critical issue in our day and time? Because folks, there's a lot of people out there. Now they're just blatant about it. No doubt about it. They want to kill you. They want to kill me. We understand this, right? I hope we hadn't stuck our heads in the sand again. There's people out there that want to kill us. We know who they are. The blatant ones. But it's the ones that look like you. That talk like you. That act like you to some degree. Those are the ones that we need to be really concerned about. And you know why? Because those are the ones that are in our midst. You shall know them by their fruit. So thanks, Bill. You've given me a lot to think about. You know, laying in the bed at 3 o'clock in the morning. Well, we're not through yet, okay? So just, we're just kind of laying the foundation tonight. But, but, but know this. Our Father, according to Amos chapter 3, he says, Surely the Lord God does nothing except He first reveal His secret unto His servants, the prophets. Do you know why He does that? Because He wants His people to understand what's going on. Do you know why He wants His people to understand what's going on? Because He wants His people to be prepared and equipped to do what He has placed them on this earth to do. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, if we are grabbing hold of Him, if we are embracing His His Word, and we are striving to be obedient to His voice, then guess what? Then all the devils in hell can't do a thing about it. When He's done with me, He's done with me. But until that point in time, I believe that He is going to permit me, His going to permit you. He's going to permit all of us as a body to do what he placed us on this planet to do. And what did he place us on this planet to do? To mature and to produce fruit. Why? Because there's a lot of other people out there that are depending on you. They're depending on me. They're depending on us. He has put us in this world to infect this world with the gospel of our Messiah. Amen? Amen. Amen. You're listening to Solace Radio, Monta Vista, Colorado. If you like the programming you hear on Solace Radio, please become a partner with us and donate any amount you'd like. Now, back to our program. 